Okay, we in this particular second section have spoken about five impactful works that non-Jews have written about Jews and Judaism. The first, of course, which we had read was Mark Twain, who said wonderful things about the Jews in his famous letter. And again, as I made the point repeatedly, I've always found interesting that it seems that every decade, some non-Jews, at least in the last 50, 60 years, found something great to say about Jews and Judaism. So Mark Twain was the first that we spoke about, which happened in 1898 in Harper's Magazine. Then we spoke about the source in the 1960s by, by Michener. 1970s, it was Ernest Vanderhaag called the Jewish Mystique. Uh, social anthropologist. 1980s was Paul Johnson for the history of the Jews. 1990s it was uh, The Gift of the Jews by James Cahill. All who said great things about the Jews. Now why is that important to us? It's important to us because we made the point that we have a role to play of impacting upon the non-Jewish world. Are we doing so? So obviously, if you have a person like James Mitchell who's going to write a book that's going to sell 35 million copies and, and translate it to five languages and still be in print, still be in print, 40 years later, we've made a great impact upon him. So now, when you read the source, <clears throat> I think it's a great book to read. It's engaging, it's intriguing, it's a book that covers all of Jewish history. But there are two questions you want to ask. One is, is he accurate in his historical presentation? Right? That's one very important question you want to ask. And two is, how do we react to it? So now, assuming it's accurate, we did for homework, we read one section in the, uh, we told you to read for homework the, um, I was doing my homework in class. I always do my homework, I always did my homework in class. An old man. So why am I using this as my dentist then? I want to hope you got your homework at home. An old man and his God, which was a great chapter about paganism. Paganism <clears throat> which was a prominent part of biblical teachings. The Bible is ultimately and absolutely concerned about the phenomenon called idolatry or paganism. So now, what is the Torah all about in terms of paganism and, um, and idolatry? We had made the point that there are multiple sections that we could have chosen, but you read the 18th chapter of Vayikra, which speaks about sexual deviancy and perversion and child sacrifice. And again, what this book does, it confirms what 18 is all about. And again, when you read 18, you get this stark statement, do not do these 50 or 16 eight, uh, perver sexual perversions and deviancies. Don't do it. And don't do child sacrifice, because the land will react and spew you out and spit you forth. So you wonder, well, did I really do that? And you... you is this really something part and part of, of Canaanite culture that the Jews came into? So a book such as this confirms that. All of his research, and again, if you read Norman Mailer's Ancient Evenings, all of that confirms the biblical concern, intense discussion of paganism and idolatry. That's number one. Number two is we spoke about the 22nd chapter of Bereshit, which is which is about child sacrifice. And there we made the point that even though Abraham is seen as a model of faith in terms of this 22nd chapter, because he's willing to sacrifice his child, that's perhaps only one reading, and maybe even the wrong reading. The original reading might have been that God asks of Abraham what every pagan deity asks of its 
adherence, his adherence, which is, I need your child. And the Hidush, or the great revelation of this chapter, is the end of the chapter, which says, God says, I don't want child sacrifice. The entire chapter builds itself up as God wants this, and that the message really is that God is saying to Abraham, I am unlike other pagan deities who demand child sacrifice, I simply want you, your commitment, your love, your belief, your just and righteous, all that, I don't want your child. So that is a radical, innovative, revolutionary teaching in biblical, in biblical lore, L-O-R-E. So, <clears throat> that's the first chapter. Now, on the other hand, in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, we do in fact find that the Jews engage in child sacrifice. So you wonder, how did the Jews miss the, po- miss the point, miss the boat? In 1300, they had a Torah. Torah wants to change them radically and sees idolatry as its greatest enemy. One can rightfully argue that the undercurrent of almost all of biblical teaching is to dethrone idolatry and paganism. That's the notion. Now, in light of that, you wonder, how did 700 years after the Bible was given, 700 years, the Jews engaged in idolatry, in paganism, in child sacrifice, and all the sexual rights that were involved? Right? Now, to get a good answer to that question, you read the source. Because in the Bible, all you get is the condemnation. Jeremiah, Hosea, all the Nevi'im, they're condemning everybody for doing it. But they're not telling us, why did people engage? Why was it so attractive? And then, after understanding that, the next very frightening question is, could we engage in the same? Are human beings in the modern world subject to the same forces of a man two and a half thousand years ago and therefore engage in idolatry? That's the question. So the why question has to be answered as well as can it happen again? That's what we want to talk about over here. So I'm assuming you read the chapter. There's only for us to go over the chapter. Again, I'm not interested in Mishner's style as a writer. I'm interested only if he's accurate. So, all that we've read about Mishnah is that he is accurate. He did his homework. To the extent where he's quotes in other sections, minor midrashim, that 95% of Jews never even heard of, he knows them. I know them. I study midrash. And I'm amazed. How does he know that midrash? Where did he get it from? Who told him? It's an amazing phenomenon. So, I'm assuming that he did his homework. In this chapter and other chapters, and everything we read about idolatry, paganism, he's accurate. So it's interesting. He presents to us a scenario, a picture of what idolatry and paganism is actively all about. Which you don't get from Tanakh. Tanakh you get the condemnations. You get the consequences. You don't get the why. So that's an enduring question. We raise the question. Why did those people engage in idolatry? And we raise the question, what about the modern possibility? Now, interesting is that the Bible, of course, battles against idolatry, absolutely. In all those contexts and other contexts. The Talmud says, whoever denies idolatry, ki'ilu ki'emet kula turah kula. All you have to be is a non-pagan, a non-idolater, and you fill the whole Torah. The whole Torah came to root out idolatry. So now, what's the underlying premise of that issue? Why is the Talmud making that strange statement? What's it really assuming? 
Is it, it is, is it assuming that idolatry is a done deal? No, it's assuming it's yeah. ongoing. That it's still around. The Talmud's third, fourth, fifth century after the common era. And that means that idolatry had been rooted out, quote unquote, from Judea for at least a thousand years. Remember, the prophets, prior to the destruction, condemned idolatry. After the destruction, five days before the common era, we have no prophetic statement against idolatry. The post-exilic prophets, Haggai Zechariah Malachi, don't forget all about idolatry. Jews got the message. Jeremiah said, if you engage in idolatry, you're going to be exiled. They were exiled. Therefore, they said, oh, guess what? The prophets were right. We engaged idolatry and child sacrifice. We were exiled. We were punished. Miserable scenario. So when we came back 70 or 80 years later and rebuilt the second temple, we're not making this mistake again. So they didn't make this mistake again. So then why the Talmud talk about idolatry? Why the Talmud 800 years later saying that if you deny idolatry as if it were a, and then a modern possibility, then you fill the whole Torah. So it's, the Talmud is still battling that battle. Why? Yeah. Because it feels like it, it's always, it always has the possibility of reoccurring. Okay, good. Excellent. And when we ask the question last time, most of us agree it could still resurrect. Let's add one more point to that. Not only does it have a possibility of recurring. Has it really, has it really occurred? Okay, we'll raise that as well. Okay, good. I'm sorry? They didn't experience it in Judea. It certainly wasn't in Greek, Greece and, uh, Greek and Rome, yeah? Okay. Okay, were the rabbis commenting good on the Greek and Roman culture, which was completely idolatrous, or were they commenting psychologically on what human being is really all about? Is my question? And even and I'm sorry. That he has a need for it. Who is he? Man. 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 Man, a need for it. Okay, good. That's the second possibility. And perhaps making a distinction between the ancient idolatry and modern idolatry. Is all idolatry the same? The answer is no. Ancient idolatry was an idol that you bow down to. Which Isaiah, for example, Yeshayahu, laughs at. He has this great, it's the seventh chapter, whatever it's fifth chapter, I don't remember, chapter where he describes a man gets up in the morning, cuts down a tree, he carves a tree, he gilds the tree, and then what does he do? He bows down to the tree and he says, You tree, you idol, gave birth to me. How foolish could a person be? Now, of course, Abraham, in a Midrashic Talmudic statement, says the same thing. His father says to him, I have this whole store full of idols. So, Abraham, take care. When somebody comes in, tell him an idol. So, he walks in. Well, you want to burst the idols? We just did it yesterday. She goes, no. You convinced me. People cook in. So, sorry? In a clip Right. It was, it was a clip store. So, then he, what happens? He takes a hammer. He breaks all the idols. Puts the, the hammer in the hand of a... Big idol, right? So his father says, what did you do to my store? He says, I didn't do it. He did it. The guy with the hammer. So he says to me, what are you, foolish? They don't see, they don't think, they don't want anything. So he says, let your ears hear what your mouth says. They don't do anything, so why are you bound down to them? Ding. The light bulb goes off. So, <clears throat> ancient idolatry was an interesting phenomenon. But modern idolatry, in every generation, 